Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Those who want to become rich, St. Paul writes, fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, he continues, is the root of all evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, O man of God, flee from these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Make no mistake, when St. Paul attacks the love of money, he is attacking money, point blank. Because everyone knows, even though most will never admit, that everyone loves money. As an alternative to wealth, Paul proposes the pursuit of the righteousness that comes from God, which, Matthew explains, is the treasure in heaven. To gain this treasure, the one who labors must attribute all credit for their deeds to the Father of Jesus and take no credit from anyone other than him. This is the only wise choice because according to both Paul and Matthew, since the Heavenly Father does not die, the hope of credit from him is the only worthwhile investment. For, St. Paul explains, we have brought nothing into the world and it is certain that we can carry nothing out. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, verses 16 to 21. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 255 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Last week, Rich, we wrapped up the Lord's Prayer, and we noticed that in the Gospel of Matthew, there's this extra addition that doesn't appear in the Gospel of Luke, and that is this emphasis, this insistence that the Lord's mercy towards us, the Lord's forgiveness of our debt, is contingent upon our attitude towards those indebted to us. Because our debt is so great, how could we hold a debt over someone else? And again, as we move forward into verse 16 of chapter 6, we return to another critical theme in the Gospel of Matthew. So there's the insistence on forgiving as a condition of our forgiveness, and there's also the insistence on secrecy. But we're reaching a point now in chapter 6 where Matthew is going to show his cards a bit and help us understand what's really at stake with this question 
of secrecy. Matthew makes it absolutely clear that our duty is forgiving others their debts. And I also think this fits with the theme of secrecy because Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount does not write about exclusively doing everything in secret. Some things are in secret and other things are not. And interestingly, forgiveness is not something that is emphasized to be done in secret. Not holding debt over other people's heads is of supreme importance in the teaching of Jesus in this passage. Rich, it's interesting that the two critical terms, and they come through even in English, the two critical terms in this section of Matthew are credit and debt. I think you're absolutely correct in the way that you connect this question of secrecy to the question of debt, because the whole thing is about what is owed and what needs to be paid and what you should take or what you should deny yourself. And so when we talk about secrecy, it's ultimately so that you can't receive benefit from the work of the commandment. Very specifically in Matthew, the work of the commandment. When you receive benefit, when you receive credit from the work of the commandment, you are accepting payment from the wrong employer, from the wrong boss. I use the word employer because it's a word that most likely will resonate with a modern audience because you think of your employer as the person who writes your check. And in Matthew, we are being taught that there is only one person from whom we should accept payment. And that is not the one who gives us credit in this life. There is a tension, and it will become very clear as we move forward into verse 19. There is a tension in the Gospel of Matthew between worldly payment, the kind of payment that passes away with us, or the heavenly payment, the divine payment that is permanent insofar as it is handed down to us in the content of the divine word. Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. Eating and not eating function in our society to gain certain kinds of rewards. The thing I find fascinating here is oftentimes Christians who do fast talk about how you're supposed to be cheerful when you fast and not sad when you fast. It's not about sadness or happiness. It's about disfiguring their faces, not their hearts, so that they appear to men to fast. They're not allowed to let others know that they fast, and those who do want to fast among Christians, make a deal about how they're fasting, and then they'll say, oh, but I'm joyful about it, I'm grateful about it, I'm happy about it, I do it out of gratitude, blah, 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 and they talk, 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 talk. And then we go back to the previous passage, which talks about how only the nations believe that they are rewarded for their multiplying words. You're not allowed to talk about your virtue in your fasting. You're not allowed to let others know that you're fasting. No one is allowed to perceive any deprivation on your part for any virtuous cause in order that you may receive an invisible reward from the one who is invisible, which is God.
this is just one more example and a long line of examples of ways in which people convince themselves they can get credit from others, some kind of recognition or acknowledgement of their deeds. So fasting, in this sense, is functional. It could certainly apply to people bragging about eating healthy food, but it could also apply to people bragging about how well they keep their home or bragging about what a great parent they are. All of those things can function in the same way as fasting functions here in verse 16 as a way to receive praise. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. You are not to anoint your head and wash your face so that you can talk about how happy you are and how festive it is to fast. That's not the point. The point is that you anoint your head and wash your face as normal. You're not supposed to look like anything is happening. Just like when you're praying inside your closet, it doesn't look like you're praying. This entire process has to be done where no human being can see that it's happening. Just act normal. Just look normal. Look like everybody else. You know, Christians go on and on and on about how we're supposed to look different from everybody. We're supposed to act different from everybody. But in fact, Jesus is saying, look like everybody, act like everybody, and do all your piety in secret so that when you're in the open, you look and sound like everybody else. Anything that deviates from, quote, the culture, unquote, you do secretly. This is a very difficult part because Christians want to make being Christian part of their identity. They want it to shine forth to show, look how I'm a Christian. But everything in chapters 5 and 6, the only thing that you're allowed to show is when people are making fun of you. But they can't be making fun of you because you're praying in public or you're fasting in public or giving alms in public. You have to be doing everything that is virtuous, anything that could be considered your righteousness. Do it in secret. Let God judge. Because if it's wicked in God's eyes and good in man's eyes, it's going to be bad for you. The other point I wanted to make, Richard, before the episode, you and I talked a little bit about the Greek in verse 17. In the New American Standard Bible, it's translated, but you, when you fast. And people often take that as an implication that everyone hearing this text should be fasting. The better translation is simply, but you in fasting, meaning if you happen to fast or whenever you find yourself fasting, it's not telling you to fast. If the occasion occurs when you fast, make sure that no one knows you're fasting. Because the commandment here is that whatever you do is not to be noticed by men. And this is an important point because fasting, as you explained in your example earlier, can be self-serving not just in terms of the praise or the admiration you might receive from others who look and say, oh my, look how well Richard takes care of himself. In a religious setting, look how dedicated and faithful he is. But there's obvious health benefits to fasting. In the Gospel of Matthew, which is so heavily focused on seeing God in the needy neighbor, fasting has a specific value. You reduce what pleases you 
so that you have more capacity to give to others. If you eat less, you expend less resources, you have more time, and you have more resources for others. This is the spirit of fasting in a Matthean sense, that you set aside what was for you to give to others. But very often, people make the mistake, and Matthew will come out forcefully against this. They make the mistake of convincing themselves that it's what we put into our mouth that defiles us. This is absolutely a misunderstanding of Scripture and a great failing of religion. Because if a religion is scriptural, it's not a health plan to improve your life. It's a directive to make your life more useful. There's a big difference. And useful is decided by the Lord and the Lord alone. All of these things that Jesus is telling his listeners to be very careful about are acts of righteousness. And our acts of righteousness are very precarious because righteous according to whom? If they are righteous according to human beings, they are evil. If they are righteous according to God, then they are righteous. God is the only one from whom we're allowed to take a reward. He's the only boss, like you said, Father. In the previous passage, we were talking about alms, but those are your acts of righteousness. That's exactly what Jesus says, Zikiosini. You have to be careful that you perform no act of righteousness where other people can see it. And this is the most radical message that Jesus has in this passage. You are not allowed to be seen to be performing these acts of righteousness. It's not what a man puts into his mouth that defiles him, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles him. When you choose not to put something in your mouth, or you choose not to eat the wrong food, which is the instruction that Matthew is dealing with in the Old Testament. When you control what you put in your mouth to fulfill a religious obligation, that doesn't purify you. What purifies or defiles you is what you say. So when you turn then and say, with your countenance or with the words on your lips, look at me, I'm a poor victim, I'm denying myself, I'm your hero. It's the victim-hero mentality which becomes the basis for self-righteousness that's attacked here with the instruction to do everything in secret. When you speak this way with your countenance or with your words, you defile yourself. You truly defile yourself. So we have to start hearing Matthew in context of Matthew We try on the podcast not to skip ahead to what will be said in Matthew, but it's such an important text with such a rich trove of fertile biblical sayings, sayings that have come to be the most recognizable even to unchurched Christians, that it's impossible to read Matthew without hearing Matthew. (laughs) So bear with us as we work through the text. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So we've been hearing over and over again, don't take credit. You don't want to have a payment 
that will fade away with you when you die. You want a payment that has value. You want a payment, as we've said over and over in Matthew, that can't be put in your pocket and can't be spent at the store, and that has a value that goes well beyond the narrow boundaries of your short existence on earth. Right. The focus here is to think about the eternal as opposed to the temporal. And I'm using those terms specifically here, but I want to offer a caveat. When people start talking about eternal, they start thinking about their feelings, they start thinking about angels leaping from cloud to cloud, and they start getting a little fantastical about the way that they perceive what is eternal. But what it's saying is that the one who judges is eternal. The one who judges is the one who's judged throughout history. And to understand what that means, let me give an example. I was talking to a friend of mine from Nigeria, and he was explaining the legal system in Nigeria. You have a local sheikh or a chief. Whenever there's a dispute between people, they go to the sheikh, they go to the chief, and he decides the correct way in that matter. Now, you're always hoping that you're going to have a wise chief who's going to make wise decisions. Sometimes you get a wise one, sometimes you get a less wise one, and that just changes from generation to generation. So you don't have stability that way. One of the things that Anglo-Saxons decided to do was to have laws be the thing that stand for making decisions for us and for adjudicating these situations, because a document like scripture will have a longer life. But if you imagine that there's one judge who has judged every case in the history of the world and has one document that documents every decision that he's made and everything that he expects, this is what it means to be eternal. You have an eternal judge, meaning you have the same judge who judged your grandfather and your great-great-grandfather and your sixth great-grandfather and your child and your great-grandchild and your great-great-six-time child. Okay? You have one judge. This is the only one you have to impress. You're not allowed to impress this guy at work and this woman at the gym and then please your wife and then this and that. You have one judge who you answer to. This judge may expect you to do certain things that may put you in conflict with others and may have you be at peace with others because it's a law that's functional as far as human situations are, but is constant as far as scripture goes. So you must receive the reward that only this eternal judge gives, which is always consistent and has nothing to do with the human beings you surround yourself with, other than you must serve them as his children. Rich, Americans should understand this because we all go to great lengths to plan for our retirement, and we operate as though we're going to live forever. But we know that the resources we have are finite and that eventually they'll be of no use to us. Matthew is saying, why not acknowledge that fact and seek out resources that will be of use for everyone forever, as opposed to for you for a short time to no worthwhile end? That's the difficult question that's being posed here. Can we seek out the kind of credit that isn't gratifying in an immediate sense and doesn't benefit us in an obvious way. It's beyond our reach in the heavens. We can't put it in our pocket. Maybe the only benefit is the benefit that those who come after us may get from it, 
and we see nothing, only the reward that comes to the generations yet unborn. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.